Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you listened to the show I produced in early November last year, you would have heard some great stories about members of the Communist Party of Australia. There are so many inspiring ones, so today I thought I'd share a few more. Kath Williams was a significant figure in the struggle for equal pay in Victoria. A prominent ALP member for nearly two decades, she joined the CPA in 1936. She spent a decade teaching and working for the party in rural Victoria. After employment in 1948 as an organiser for the Liquor Trades Union, she drove the campaign for equal pay for two decades as Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Equal Pay Committee. Kath's father, Edward, had been Foundation Secretary of the Victorian Clerks Union, and it was through him that she met Percy Clary, then Clerks Union Federal President, whom she married in 1917, resigning from her teaching career on marriage, as per tradition. Percy had ambitions in the union movement and the ALP, rising to prominence on peak union bodies in Victoria and nationally, as well as serving as a Labour member in both the Victorian and Federal Parliaments. Kath, supporting and encouraging his career, also joined and became prominent in the ALP. Believing strongly in trade unionism and the Labour Party's role in improving the lives of working-class Australians, Kath threw herself into ALP activities, becoming secretary of her local Caulfield branch, serving on the Victorian State Executive and being elected president of the ALP Women's Organising Committee. Over the years, Percy had shifted rightwards, while Kath moved even further to the left. Her observations of unemployment and deepening poverty during the Depression led her to question existing structures of society and the adequacy of governments, whether Liberal or Labour, to alleviate working-class people's conditions. With the growth of fascism in Germany and Italy, she became active in the movement against war and fascism, proving a clear, thoughtful and powerful public speaker. In 1935, matters came to a head. Pre-selected for the seat of Caulfield in the March state elections, she withdrew without contesting the ballot. Speaking at a movement against war and fascism rally, she breached ALP policy by publicly advocating imposition of sanctions on Italy for its October invasion of Abyssinia. As a result, in December she was excluded from the party, along with Maurice Blackburn and others. She was also removed from her position as the Women's Organising Committee President and, largely because of political differences between them, her marriage to Percy ended. Kath's suspension from the ALP was lifted the following year, but it was already too late. In 1936, she and Percy divorced, enabling him to advance his political career without being embarrassed by his wife's radical politics, and at that point she joined the CPA. As a divorced woman, she could again work as a teacher, but no jobs were available. After two years as a struggling single mother with only intermittent work, she got a teaching job at Portland on the state's southwest coast. In her five years there, she settled into rural life and established contact with local radicals. 
during the CPA's illegal period, they wrote an illegal newsletter and clandestinely distributed it by night. When their typewriter was not in use, it was suspended on a rope down a local farm as well, and the Gestetner duplicator was hidden in the nearby marshland. Despite intermittent surveillance and a number of raids, they avoided arrest. In 1943, Kath moved to teach at Wonthaggi, a coal mining town with a long history of union militancy. Joining the thriving local CPA branch, which at its peak had 130 members, she worked with veteran activists Agnes and Wattie Doig to run the branch, distribute the party paper and campaign on party issues. When she married minor and CPA member Andy Williams in 1945, again retiring from teaching, she ran the party bookshop and worked as local party organiser. The marriage was short-lived, and returning to Melbourne in 1948, aged 51, Kath became an organiser with the left-wing Liquor Trades Union, thus setting out on the path which was to define the rest of her working life. In that year, she was also elected to the party's Victorian State Committee. Though equal pay had long been an aim of working women and progressive people, progress had been glacial. While women's rates in many industries had been increased by the Women's Employment Board during the war years, the post-war period saw widespread moves to reduce them to pre-war levels. There was a common view that women should return to the home, their workforce participation at best seen as short-term. Kath, working as a low-paid organiser in an industry with low pay and poor conditions, saw very early on that despite her success recruiting women workers in bars, restaurants and canteens to the union and taking action on appalling conditions, together with her union's willingness to support action on women's wages, the issue could not be adequately addressed by individual union action. Kath's ALP experience had made her an effective operator and now she used her CPA state committee role to convince prominent male union comrades of the need for sustained action, if only to avoid the threat of low-paid women workers taking their members' jobs. Nominated by the Liquor Trades Union as a delegate to the Melbourne Trades Hall Council, she began to push for a larger and all-embracing campaign. When the 1953 ACTU Congress called for the establishment of equal pay committees in each state, in reaction to the Menzies government's attacks on women's wages. Kath pushed on all fronts for the next two years until the Melbourne Trades Hall Council finally established an equal pay committee in 1955. She was unanimously elected as the committee's honorary secretary organiser, a role she retained for the rest of her working life. In effect, she was now carrying out two full-time jobs, her liquor trades union organiser role, as well as her role with the Equal Pay Committee, which involved working long hours pursuing the campaign by writing leaflets for widespread distribution within the unions, speaking at union members' meetings, organising public rallies and press, radio and election campaigns to gain support. She also remained very active on the CPA State Committee, where her union contacts were regularly utilised to assist in the campaign. A 1956 Roy Morgan poll showed 67% of the Australian public supported equal rates for women. This was to increase as more and more energy was put into the public campaign over the next 15 years. Equal pay committees were established in every state. National Equal Pay and Working Women's Conferences were convened by the ACTU. Deputations and petitions were organised to state and federal governments and individual MPs lobbied, and an Equal Pay Week was declared. At the Melbourne Trades Hall Council, Kath continued her work, often in the background to the public roles taken by prominent male union leaders. An effective speaker, she was a regular on the Yarra Bank and at other meetings on the topic of equal pay. She also pursued the issue unrelentingly on less public occasions. 
Attending an equal pay conference in Sydney, she noticed that at breakfast in the delegates' hotel, the women were served smaller portions than the men, but were charged the same, and she berated the management. In 1956, the Union of Australian Women sent Kath as an observer to a working women's conference in Budapest, organised by the World Federation of Trade Unions and the Women's International Democratic Federation. After the conference, at which Kath reported on the situation of Australian women workers, delegates spent two weeks in the Soviet Union and a month in China. Kath was at the heart of the equal pay struggle in Victoria in the 1950s and 60s, and her dogged persistence made a major contribution to the national campaign. Despite her ailing health, she lived long enough to see the 1969 equal pay decision giving women equal pay for equal work, and although she would by then have been in very poor health, she also witnessed the overturning of the 1907 Harvester decision, by which men received a higher minimum rate of pay because they were assumed to be supporting families. The Commission's 1974 Minimum Rates decision recommended the introduction of a single minimum rate for men and women. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Noel Cunahan was a socialist painter, printmaker, cartoonist and illustrator active in the 1940s and 50s. He was a major Australian artist of the 20th century. Add to that a communist, pacifist, painter and political activist. Noel joined the CPA during the Depression years and remained in the party till he died. Noel did vox pop, worked for the newspapers and showed his work in galleries and exhibitions. In the 20th century, cartoons and caricatures were a major popular and political form. Satire and humour were serious weapons in the class struggle, and comedy has always been a leading approach for those who seek not only to tell truth to power, but also to encourage sarcasm towards the emperors. Taking the piss was also a form of radical politics. All of this by the virtue of print mass media in black and white in places like the Bulletin as well as the Communist Press. These images possess power. They softened the faces of his friends and hardened the features of his class enemies. The power of Cunahan's images is palpable. They are very often lino cuts. The stark visual of black and white offers a sense of clarity and relief. A famous piece entitled Tycoon depicts the bourgeois world which Cunahan despised, gnarled, bitter and aggressive, ready to shout, save for the cigar stuffed in his mouth. The tycoon represents Collins Street to Cunahan, but it reaches back to the classical left visual of Fat the Capitalist. As well as being a cartoonist or poster maker, Cunahan was also a fine painter. His preference was figurative, in sympathy with the bias of the 1960 Antipodean Manifesto. He was a social realist whose socialist politics influenced, but did not dictate his subject or style. 
The object of his realist painting was most often popular suffering, but not the heroic imagery of Soviet period art. This work took him to sites like the Wanfaggy coal mines and later to the Ruwalt metalworks. It took him to the German death camps and to the images of the historic injustices served out to Indigenous peoples across the path of white Australian history. Knoll's commitment to the realist dimension of social realism sometimes generated conflict with more orthodox or Soviet-minded comrades. In 1947, for example, having been elected to the Central Committee of the CPA, he was invited to design an appropriate mural. He chose not the triumphant colours of Soviet or utopian portrayal of the radiant future, but maintained rather his reliance on the images of darker daily work and struggle. There was some controversy in party ranks as to whether he'd got it right and his plans were shelved. Australian art historian Bernard Smith explained that the difference between him and Knoll was their location in time. Knoll was, as Bernard put it, a depression communist, whereas Bernard was a World War II communist. Only a decade apart, the connotations were nevertheless striking. Cunahan's most powerful images addressed poverty, evictions, hunger, the misery of deprivation, the demands of hard and ill-paid work. Smith's formation was in the moment of anti-fascism and later of the persistence of the Soviets against the Nazis in Stalingrad. Most of Cunahan's work and life were lived in Melbourne and his relationship with his father was turbulent. Early experiences observing acts of eviction marked him for life, predisposing him to value the principles of equality and justice. Noel began to read his way into radicalism, prompting his father to burn his left-wing books, including his copies of New Masses and his books on Marxism. Noel left home and entered the world of Melbourne's Bohemia more fully. He became immersed in the international culture of radicalism, not least through the evening classes he took at the National Gallery of Victoria, where he had made friends with Judah Watton, Roy Dalgano and Brian Fitzpatrick. The best political story about Cunahan, oft rehearsed, concerns his spectacle in Sydney Road, Brunswick, defending the right to speech by spruiking from within an iron cage in 1933. Actually, it was a disused elevator box. He ended up in Pentridge, jailed for speaking his mind. This was what later radicals would call an event or a spectacle. It was an exemplary act of courage and defiance, of arbitrary misuse of state power against the cause of civil liberties. In 1933, fascism was on the rise, particularly in Europe, and the right to free speech and assembly is always worth fighting for. You're hearing excerpts from a book entitled Comrades. These short biographies honour the memory of some of the many thousands of ordinary communists who worked throughout their lives in their workplaces and localities to help build movements and promote progressive change throughout Australia. Brian Manning was the co-founder of the Northern Territory Council for Aboriginal Rights and the Northern Territory Trades and Labour Council, life member of the Maritime Union of Australia and member of the CPA for over 30 years. 
Brian was born on the 13th of October 1932 in the middle of the Depression in Mundabera in the northern Burnett region of Queensland. Brian later shifted to Darwin, a move that would profoundly influence his political consciousness and change the trajectory of his life. When Brian arrived in the Territory, he worked first as a carpenter with the Works Department and later as a patrol officer and fireman at the airport. He also started reading Tribune and reflecting on his own working life, was drawn to the ideas of socialist economics. But it was the Democratic Labour Party domination of Darwin Labour Party politics that saw him eschew Labour in favour of the CPA, which he joined in 1959. Brian's first job was to revive the fortunes of the Moribund's CPA branch, which had ossified into little more than a fraction of the Waterside Workers' Federation, or WWF. This task was made easier by the arrival of comrades from Brisbane and by Brian's indoctrination of his housemates. Brian's house, dubbed the Kremlin, became a focal point of activism. The group threw its support behind the Stay Put Malayan campaign in 1961, a cause championed by the NT News to save three indentured Malayan pearlers from deportation. It was also in 1961 that Brian was instrumental in the formation of the Northern Territory Council for Aboriginal Rights. It took up issues on behalf of the Aboriginal population, determined its agenda and set equal wages as a primary goal. Standing in the way of equal pay was the hugely influential North Australian Workers' Union and its leader, Paddy Carroll. Brian, who later commented that there was no point having connections in the movement if you don't use them, lobbied Alex MacDonald, then the ACTU Interstate Executive, to put pressure on Carroll to move on Aboriginal wages. Eventually Carroll relented, but Brian was appalled when he turned up to the equal pay hearing with nothing more than a packet of cigarettes and a box of matches. He called no witnesses and agreed to pastoralist demands that if equal pay was to be given, a slow workers clause must be included in the award. The implementation of equal wages was delayed for three more years. The Rights Council, furious with the outcome, urged a strike of Aboriginal workers. This culminated in the Gurindji walk-off in 1966. When news came that the Gurindji had decided to take action against the station, Brian Dexter Daniels and Robert Tudawali drove Brian's now-famous Bedford truck for over 36 hours on largely corrugated roads to get supplies to the strikers and their families. After Brian started work on the wharves, his direct involvement with the Gurindji declined, but his dedication to the cause did not. He pushed for a black ban on Vesti's goods and convinced the WWF membership to support a $1 levy in support of the Gurindji campaign. Brian became the WWF secretary and went on to co-found the NT Trades and Labour Council. He also set up an unemployed workers' relief centre to provide support to men out of work in the wet season. In 1974, a visit by Dennis Freeney again changed the course of Brian's life. Inspired by the independence struggle in Timor-Leste, Brian visited Dili in 1974 and 75, making deep connections with Fretilin. Brian and others in Darwin sent radio transmitters paid for by the CPA to Dilly, keeping one in Darwin. Brian's role in the Darwin side of Fretilin's communication system was crucial, and he continued this work despite close surveillance and police harassment throughout the 1970s and into the 80s. Brian was also instrumental in supporting a black ban on Indonesian goods being loaded and unloaded in Darwin. In May 2000, Brian returned to Dili, leading a search foundation delegation to Fretilin's first above-ground conference since the 1975 invasion. He maintained his support for Fretilin for the rest of his life. Yeah.
Joyce Stevens was a prominent Sydney socialist, feminist, activist and writer and a leading member of the CPA at a national and district level. She was an historian of the women's movement, authoring three major publications and an inspiration to a whole generation of feminists. Joyce was born on 6th of January 1928 as the third child in a family living in country New South Wales. She had two older brothers and a younger sister. Her father was a railway fettler and her mother, Lucy Barnes, had been a nurse. She moved to Sydney aged 14 with her mother and two of her siblings after her parents had separated. In Sydney, she attended the selective and prestigious North Sydney Girls High, but did not enjoy life at the school and decided to leave as soon as she could rather than pursuing her early goal of becoming a teacher. She began her working life in an office and later spent a year in the Women's Land Army and then became an organiser for the Eureka Youth League. Jim Stevens, whom she later married, was also very active in the league. Joyce absorbed her mother's progressive politics. From an early age, she developed a strong commitment to social justice and human rights. In her youth, she became involved in the socialist movement, joining the Australian Labor League of Youth, which later became the Eureka Youth League. Many of those in the league whom she most admired were CPA members, and impressed by their politics, she joined the party, later working full-time for the party and later still for Tribune, its paper. In 1955, Joyce became the first CPA woman to visit China as part of a CPA study group. I got to know Joyce in 1965 when I began working for the party, where Joyce was already working. We worked on and were involved in the various political issues of the day. We had been heavily involved in campaigns such as the Ban the Bomb movement for improved living standards, support for industrial activity, 
for emerging environmental issues against nuclear testing in the Pacific, uranium mining and the Vietnam War. But somehow in all of our campaigning, many issues of specific importance to women were at best peripheral. It was not that there were not lots of strong women in the CPA, but other issues somehow assumed priority and many issues of importance to women were not raised in polite society. However, things were about to change. In 1969, Joyce attended the first meeting of Women's Liberation in Glebe Point Road, Glebe. At that time, there was no sex discrimination, equal opportunity or sexual harassment legislation. There were no women's health centres or refuges. Domestic violence was a taboo subject. Abortion was illegal. There was very limited access to knowledge about fertility control. Women had few opportunities for promotion at work and were denied access to many occupations. Women were paid less than men even for the same work. There was no paid maternity leave and if women returned to work after having a child, then childcare was their problem. Homosexuality was illegal and Lionel Murphy's no-fault divorce legislation was some six years away. Joyce was like a force of nature in this new movement for women's liberation. She was enormously energetic, inspired and inspiring. She played an important or leading role in many projects, including the yearly International Women's Day marches. Joyce wrote the following piece for IWD 1975. Because women's work is never done and is underpaid or unpaid or boring or repetitious and we're the first to get the sack and what we look like is more important than what we do and if we get raped it's our fault and if we get bashed we must have provoked it and if we raise our voices we're nagging bitches and if we enjoy sex we're nymphos and if we don't we're frigid and if we love women it's because we can't get a real man. And if we ask our doctor too many questions, we're neurotic and or pushy. And if we expect community care for children, we're selfish. And if we stand up for our rights, we're aggressive and unfeminine. And if we want to get married, we're out to trap a man. And if we don't, we're unnatural. And because we still can't get an adequate safe contraceptive, but men can walk on the moon. And if we can't cope or don't want a pregnancy, we're made to feel guilty about abortion. And for lots and lots of other reasons... We are part of the women's liberation movement. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Carolyn for helping with the reading. You can get a copy of Comrades at the New International Bookshop. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.